turning your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 9 again. Luke chapter 9, we'll look at the very end of this chapter today, verses 57 to 62. <clears throat> you know, when Bible scholars write books, they tend to be lengthy and rather dry, is my experience. Sometimes leave you wondering what exactly was it he was trying to say. When Jesus speaks, he's vivid and concise, and one knows immediately what he means, although the full extent of it may leave you pondering for days. Our text today contains three of the most vivid of Jesus' statements. They were spoken to would-be followers on the road to Jerusalem. Each of them is very pointed, but very profound. Let me just read them to you right up front. Jesus said, foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Or another one, let the dead bury their dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another one, no one who put his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Our goal this morning is to unpack those statements a bit without taming them. Or robbing them of their clarity. So let me just read them, the whole thing in its context, beginning with verse 57 down to 62. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I would like to suggest three things that we ought to learn from this text, and the first and the last are quite brief. It's in that middle point that we'll address these three statements of Jesus. The first thing we need to learn is this. Jesus calls us to follow him. Jesus calls us to follow him. We make much uh, in our day in the church, in churches like ours, of believing in Jesus. And that is certainly legitimate. We are not made right with God by earning our own way. We do not merit his grace. We receive by faith that which we do not deserve. We believe his promise and he declares us right with God as opposed to getting, making ourselves right with God and then him rewarding us somehow. So it's legitimate. It's most necessary for us to believe or trust in Jesus. There's no other way of salvation. But that does not exhaust the matter. Jesus' command to us is, follow me. That's what he said to the first disciples as they were cleaning their nets there on the shore of Galilee. And that's what he says to this man here in verse 59 when he calls him, you come and follow me. And that's what clearly people understood he was saying for the man in verse 57 and the man in verse 61 both came voluntarily and said, we will follow. Years ago I heard a youth worker say to a bunch of young people, if you believe in Jesus... If you pray and ask Jesus to save you, it doesn't matter what you do after that. You're saved. You're going to heaven. 
Now I understand her desire to hold forth the grace of God to young people. But that's really not the kind of call that you would ever hear from the lips of Jesus. Jesus certainly called people to believe in him. To trust him against all odds. But his oft-used shortcut invitation and command was much broader in its scope. Jesus said and says today, you follow me. Now clearly follow me presupposes belief. We don't follow someone we don't believe in. But it also suggests more than just belief. It involves commitment. It suggests perseverance. It assumes Jesus has a goal which we're going to share. We might say belief is not just biblical belief. It's not just something you do in your head. Or even in your heart. Belief is something you do with your life. And in life, believing is indistinguishable from following. I challenge you this morning. I assume most all of you are believers. You've heard and believed the stories about Jesus. Perhaps you memorized the catechism when you were younger. And you believed what you, what you learned there. On Sundays you come to church and you're comfortable being here. You don't disbelieve what's said here. You, you don't disagree with what you hear. But have you answered Jesus' call to follow him? Do you believe in that sense? Does his agenda set your agenda? Are you committed to go wherever he goes? Does your faith produce actions in response to his commands? Jesus calls you to follow. But before you make any rash commitments about, okay, I will. Maybe we ought to consider the second thing we learn here. Which is that Jesus claims priority... Over every other concern. Jesus claims priority. Over everything. You know I spent a lot of years in the military. So I'm always fascinated to see. What people think they're getting into. When they join up. Just to see how the military is recruiting these days. I looked, spent a few minutes and looked at some of their websites. I looked at the promises that are being made to young men and women who are uh, they're recruiting for the armed services. Topping the list is the prospect, flashing there on the first page, the prospect of, a, of up to $40,000 in signing bonus. I, I don't remember that part. Then, of course, there's the promise of travel to exotic places, which will remain unnamed, uh, and training in a career of your choice, and much is said about all the benefits, the nice housing, the recreational facilities, the GI Bill to go to college, and money for a home or for business, business when you uh, complete your tour of duty. But I notice that very little is ever said about the most profound part of military life, which is being a soldier who goes to war. Only the Marines say that right up front. On their side I read, in the Marines, everyone, sergeant, mechanic, clerk, aviator, cook, everyone is a rifleman first. All speak the language of the rifle and bayonet, of muddy boots and long hot marches. We are warriors, one and all. The Marines sound a bit more like Jesus, frankly. 
But right up front, he says plainly what following him is going to entail. It will claim priority over your needs. It will claim priority over your families. It will claim priority over your freedom to do what you please. Jesus claims priority over every other concern we might have. Now here's where we consider those great statements Jesus made. First in verses 57 and 58. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, Jesus is saying, to follow me, I am going to claim priority over your desire for comfort. All kinds of things we just assume that we have to have in life. We have to have a place to live. We have to have a bed to sleep in. We need to have some kind of safe and secure place. But Jesus tells the man who volunteered to follow him that he himself did not enjoy such comforts. The beast of the field fared better than Jesus in this regard. In fact, he had just been refused entry by a bunch of Samaritan villagers. It was not the last time that he would be rejected, left out in the cold. So Jesus says, if you would follow me, you ought to expect the same thing. You need to understand that it will take priority over your desire for comfort and security. It's a lot different than what we hear these days. This morning all across this country, huge auditoriums, some of them holding tens of thousands of people, are filled with churchgoers who are hearing what is commonly called a prosperity gospel. That's the teaching that holds that material and financial prosperity should be expected by those who trust the Savior. God wants you to be prosperous. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus says, does it? Following him will not necessarily make you more comfortable or richer. In fact, following Jesus may make you poor. Following him may not be good for business at all. As Daryl Bach notes, to follow Jesus means more than sitting at his feet and learning Torah. It's a reorientation of life involving suffering and perhaps death. The offer to follow him means facing risk and rejection. To live rejected and homeless means to trust God and know that one's home is with him. We sing a song about that on Good Friday every year. Though you are homeless, though you're alone, I will be your home. Whatever's the matter, whatever's been done, I will be your home. In this fearful, fallen place, I will be your home. But comforts and security, you're not promised. Jesus claims priority over even your basic comforts. Well, Jesus continues with another man, and the discussion changes slightly. Verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. But the man said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In other words, here Jesus is saying that he claims priority over your family. 
Now there's lots of discussion about this man's situation. Perhaps his father just died and he knows there's a funeral coming about pretty quickly. Or perhaps his father was old and frail and he expected him to die very soon. Or perhaps his father was still quite healthy, but in that culture it was considered a social obligation to stay close to home until your father uh, died and was buried and his affairs taken care of. Whichever situation he faced, this seemed to be the perfect excuse for saying to Jesus, uh, I can't follow you right now. Because didn't the law command honor your father and your mother? Oh, but Jesus didn't see this as faithfulness to the law. Jesus saw this as an upside-down set of priorities. Sure, it's good to honor aged parents, but the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus has appeared on the earth. Nothing could hinder you from following him and doing what he says. Indeed, Jesus claimed precedence over the law itself. It only pointed to him. Jesus' rationale was not that family responsibilities don't matter. In another place he says that one who doesn't care for his family and doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. Jesus just simply said that those things, though those things must be done, there are lots of people who can do them. If God has called you to proclaim his word, let people who are not called take care of that. Or as Jesus says, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Jesus claims priority over everything, even your family. Now, I know this is a bit of a bitter pill for us. We're a family church here. In recent, Christian, recent years, I've seen Christians uh, in good churches like ours have increased uh, concern about the family and the importance of the family, sometimes to the point that it has supplanted Christ's claims. God's work in churches often is left undone or only half done because so many have concluded that their family is the most important thing. In God's own name, supposedly serving him, we have, we, we have so focused on meeting our children's desires that we've inadvertently taught them that they're more important than the Lord himself. We've set aside following Christ in order to follow our children to all their ball games and their dance recitals and their birthday parties and their family days. But Jesus knows no such discipleship. He says, no, I'm first. He claims priority over even our families. Fred Craddock shows great insight in regard to this truth when he writes... The radical nature of Jesus' words lies in his claim to priority over the best, not the worst, of human relationships. Jesus never said to choose him over the devil, but to choose him over the family. And the remarkable thing is that those who have done so have been freed from possession and worship of the family and have found the distance to love them. Well, as we continue reading our text, the third man comes to Jesus, verse 61. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who put his hand to the plow and looks back 
is fit for service in the kingdom of God. In other words, here Jesus is claiming again priority over everything. In this case, priority over your freedom to uh, do what you please. Your freedom to even look back when you're busy. This man's delay in following Jesus sounded a lot like what Elisha had said back in 1 Kings 19. The prophet Elijah had called Elisha to follow him. And Elisha said, well, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye and then I'll come with you. And Elijah waited and Elisha went and told his family goodbye and then he came and followed Elijah. So, so here this potential disciple just says he wants to do exactly what Elisha did. And Jesus said no. As Jesus' coming was greater than the law, Jesus' coming was also greater than the prophets. What used to be acceptable is not good enough for the Lord himself. Jesus compares the man's request to someone putting their hand to the plow and then looking back. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I don't allow looking back. So why does, would somebody look back when they're plowing? I'm not a farm boy, as you know, so I don't know those things. Maybe some of you could tell me immediately, but I thought about it a while. I thought, now what would get into your mind? What would your mental state be when you're plowing a field to want to look back? I thought, well, maybe you just want to see how you're doing. Maybe you just want to admire your work. Of course, when you look back, you tend to make that row crooked that you're plowing right then. Or, or, or perhaps you're tired and sorry that you ever started this project and looking back to see if you're almost done. How many rows do I have left? Or, or, or perhaps you're just bored and just lost your concentration. Just gawking. <laughs> or especially given this context, perhaps the man plowing has friends or family or a girlfriend waiting for him to finish and he's distracted because what really matters is what he's going to do when he gets done with this rid of this job whatever the reason Jesus allows no looking back following him is not a short term trial run his disciple cannot be thinking uh, how am I doing wow I'm doing a great job I cannot be thinking, how long is this going to take? And cannot be thinking, I wish I could get done with this because i got more fun things to do. Jesus claims priority over every kind of concern we have, even our freedom to look back. When I was an eight-year-old boy, God called my father into the ministry called him to leave his job and cash in his retirement and pack up his family and go to serve the Lord in a brand new endeavor that had no guarantees of success. A deciding moment in my father's decision was one night when a little children's song got stuck in his mind. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And so the decision was made. But after that decision... The years were often difficult for my parents. The work was hard. The rewards were few. Those who were willing to help were, 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 were sparse. The money was always tight. They had to learn to do without. But of all the things I admired my, about my father, this is at the top. He never looked back. He would not quit. 
No matter how difficult things got, no matter who advised him that the situation was now impossible, God had called him. He had decided to follow Jesus. There would be no turning back. And there never was. He understood that Jesus claims priority over every concern we might have, even our freedom to reconsider when the cost gets too high. Well, before we finish, there's one more truth that I think needs to be said. And that's this. Jesus is worthy of your life. Jesus is worthy of your life. Since we spoke of the military a few moments ago, let me make another observation. One of the most difficult things about military life is that you must obey orders even when you have no idea why on earth you're being asked to do that. Here in Luke 9, Jesus calls us to follow him. He claims priority over every concern we might have. Our comfort, our families, our freedom. To do what we please. But why? For what cause are we asked to sacrifice everything? Well, let me suggest two answers. The first is that the one we follow is the Lord Jesus himself. We see this repeated in our text. Jesus calls people not just to a cause. He calls them to follow him. And Jesus is not just anyone. He's not just someone trying to build his career on the backs of his friends. He is the Lord. He is God come in human flesh. He is the creator from whom we've received everything we have. And to whom we owe everything we have. And he's not asking us to do something that he hasn't already done. He does not ask us to give something he has not already given it for us. It is a privilege to be called a disciple of Jesus Christ. It is a privilege to know him, to serve him, to walk with him. No matter what he's doing, no matter where we're called to follow him, a sense of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity ought to compel us to join ranks with him. And a deep sense of gratitude ought to dispel any hesitation. We are asked to follow the Lord himself. And then secondly, another reason, Jesus' kingdom is the future of this world. In this text, Jesus asks us to invest our lives in his kingdom, to make an unconditional commitment to his kingdom. Folks, people are making great commitments to all kinds of causes, which have no hope of success. But the success of God's kingdom is absolutely certain. It's assured because it's God's kingdom. It's his plan. And it's assured because God has raised his king from the dead. If you can't kill the king and have it in things, you can't stop that kingdom. This kingdom is the hope of the world. Think of what we are privileged to proclaim to our hurting, dysfunctional world. 
Jesus sends us out to say what to people? To say, in Jesus, God is reconciling you to himself, not counting your sins against you. We're sent to say, Jesus will forgive your sin and give you eternal life. We're sent to say, God is renewing the whole creation. He's starting with you and me, the people. But he will renew even the heavens and the earth. We're sent to say that though the nations of the world falter and the democracies crumble, God's kingdom and those who are citizens of it will endure forever. You and I have been called to announce the greatest news the world could possibly hear and to advance the kingdom that cannot fail. Really now, what do you have to do that's more important than that? Jesus is worthy of your life. On May the 10th, 1940, face of World War II, Winston Churchill became Prime Minister of England. On that day, he gave what has become one of history's most memorable calls to service. Churchill said, we have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God gives us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all cost. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. That's the speech in which Churchill said in another place, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. So with similar candor, the Lord Jesus with his own face set toward the suffering and death, but ultimate victory that he would face in Jerusalem. Call disciples to follow him. And what he did that day, he does this day. Jesus calls you to follow him. Not just believe some facts, but invest your life. He claims priority over every concern. You don't follow on your terms, you follow on his terms. But he is worthy of your life. He and his kingdom are the hope for this world. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we have a million excuses. Why we have more excuses than these three men ever thought of. Of why we can't do this or can't do that. The truth is, Father, our commitment to you is often pretty feeble and pretty fleeting. So, Father, give us ears to hear.
terms in which you have seen fit to call us. And Lord, give us grace to not turn away, but to give ourselves to the task. No matter what the cost, no matter what the inconvenience, wherever you send us, whatever you give us to do, whatever it costs us, oh God, grant us faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray.